This is Ideas at the House. I'm Edwina Throsby, and today we have another session from Antidote Festival. This one was hosted by me, so rather than give a long introduction here, I'm just going to throw straight to the event. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming to the Sydney Opera House and to the Antidote Festival today. I'm Edwina Throsby, I run the Talks and Ideas program here, and when I'm programming these festivals, one of the things I like to do is bring together people who are from quite different backgrounds to talk about something that is of, you know, great interest or importance to, a, to us all. So bringing together a novelist, a historian and a journalist to talk about what I think is a growing issue around the world which is national identity, and thinking about the world as it's becoming increasingly more global, but also conversely becoming increasingly tribal. I think national identity at its best um, gives people a sense of belonging, a sense that they are part of a collective, that they're part of a purpose, and at its worst, I think, results in the sort of populist xenophobia that has resulted in the most spectacular self-immolation of a democracy that I think that we've seen in recent times, which is playing out in the, in, in the United Kingdom as we speak, really. So I'm sharing the stage today with three great intellects. Um, we have Deborah Lipstadt, who is a renowned historian of the Holocaust and of anti-Semitism. Um, her work into Holocaust uh, denial um, or her, her work around the Holocaust landed her in a London court in the year 2000 where she had to uh, answer to defamation charges against David Irving. Of course, she stunningly won that charge. Um, and her recent book... Uh, yes. And her most recent book, Anti-Semitism Here and Now, is both a terrifying and a compelling synthesis, I guess, of all of your life's work, as well as personal and cultural and lived experience about what I think we're seeing around the world growing again. Um, Melissa Lukashenko is an Aboriginal writer and novelist from Brisbane. Um, she has been writing about Australian and Aboriginal culture for a long time, but her most recent novel, Too Much Lip, um, is probably the best book I've ever read about, about the impact of white invasion on culture and on families and on individuals. Um, and I'm not the only person who thought that because it won the Miles Franklin Award last month. Um, <laughs> And Fintan O'Toole, who since 1988 has been writing a regular column in the Irish Times. Um, he came to that from a background in theatre criticism, which seems increasingly more appropriate given that he's now writing about Brexit. Um, his most recent book uh, is called uh, Heroic Failure, Brexit and the Politics of Pain. And somehow he's managed to write a book about what's going on over there that is literally laugh out loud funny. So that's quite some feat. So look, today, as I say, we want to talk about national identity. And I'd like to, um, you know, talk about these concepts because I think it's the concepts that are at the heart of this. So I thought it would be useful perhaps to start with some definitions um, because I think a lot of terms get bandied around and there's a lot of slippage, I think, around what some of these terms mean. So, Deborah, I guess as a historian you like definitions. I wonder maybe whether you can briefly explain to us what the difference is between patriotism, between nationalism and between populism. Okay. Briefly, briefly put, um, Patriotism, I think, is a feeling, almost as you said it, it's akin to nationalism, a sense of loyalty, a sense of affinity, a sense of a connection to the country in which you live, a sense of being part of a greater whole, uh, maybe not a uniform whole, certainly in a multicultural society such as here in Australia and to a certain extent so far in my country, um, uh, a sense of a, but, but, be, but we are bound together. Um, nationalism um, is already you're you're at a you can be at a slippery slope to be uh, nationalism can be patriotism or it can um, descend into uh, what we call my country you know right or wrong uh, and not in the sense of a patriotic patriotic uh, loyalty but a sense of my country is always right. 
uh, whenever I watch the Olympics or especially when the Olympics takes place in the United States or whatever it might be, you see these, sometimes you'll see you know, groups of Americans going, USA, USA. That's Aussie, 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 certain, oi, oi, oi. Huh? Aussie, 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 oi, oi, oi. Yeah, well, well, that, I don't know, somehow that seems less, more benign, but that, you, <laughs> that, that USA, I mean, even the night that uh, they announced that Osama bin Laden had been uh, captured and, and, and killed, uh, there were a group of uh, mainly young men outside who gathered outside the White House going, USA, you, and that was frightening to me because it's that slippage into, um, my country can do no wrong, not right or wrong, but can do no wrong. And populism, populism is something certainly we're seeing today, and the way we're seeing it today is, <coughs> if we're talking a continuum, patriotism, nationalism, populism, is first of all, uh, this deep sense of loyalty, deep, which nothing wrong with that, but um, almost in a fanatic kind of way, uh, to one's country, and where you, the added element, and this is certainly what we're seeing, we see it in Brexit, we see it in the United States, a division between the people, populism, and the elites. And the elites, the educated, whether it's journalists, whether it's writers, whether it's scholars, are not to be trusted. They are the enemy of the true, loyal people. And um, and it becomes that becomes that USA USA kind of thing, and it's I find that very frightening. I don't think there's been any uh, fascist regi regime that I can think of which hasn't started with that kind of attitude. It's almost it's it's like populism takes nationalism and and utilizes it politically. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And and that but that division. It's not just the loyalty. It's the the, the elites. The educated, um, even when you say the word elite, it has a negative connotation. The educated, the accomplished are not to be trusted, whether it's about vaccines, whether it's about climate change, whatever it might be, but they're not to be trusted. I, I guess one of the things about uh, sort of the way that these, these ideas come about is that they are essentially based on stories, really, you know, on, on, on who gets to build the most persuasive myth um, around their country. Fintan, why do you think it's important for people to create national stories? So how, how, how do you think... Is, is there something sort of inherently human about this? Yeah, so um, nations are inventions. Um, and healthy nations are ones that know that they're invented, <laughs> and unhealthy nations are ones that forget. Um, the French thinker Ernst Renan, a great essay in the 19th century called What is a Nation? And you know, he basically, he says a nation begins with forgetting. It's based on amnesia, it's based on forgetting who we were, <laughs> how complex it all was, how all this evolved. Um, and essentially his argument w w was that a nation is um, a group of people held together by common misconceptions about their origins. You know. um, <laughs> so, uh, and of course Australia would be probably <laughs> ground zero for that, wouldn't it? I mean, uh, so look, um, the, the, the difficulty with a nation in a way, and wh why it does need storytelling, and why it needs, I mean, creative storytelling actually, is that it is an act of imagination. And the imagination can either be very dark, you know, uh, or, or it can be creative. Um, and, uh, it, you know, in, I'm from Ireland, and, and the, one of the great kind of discussions about the nation is in James Joyce's Ulysses. And Leopold Bloom, who's the hero of the book, is, is coming under attack. He, he's in a pub. There's a classic kind of 19th century nationalist who's needling him because he knows he's Jewish. And they start talking about what is a nation, you know, and, and Bloom says, a nation is the same people living in the same place. And then, because he's Jewish and Irish, he says, or in different places. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, then is it, could it also be different people living in the same place, you know? So, th there is no definition of the nation. And the struggle is to think about how we can be comfortable with the idea that a nation is being invented and reinvented, and that this isn't something we have to be 
full of anxiety about, but is actually the joy of it, right? Is that it's, it's, it's in the process of being made all the time. One of the things I think we need to be clear on at the moment is that this sort of right-wing reactionary abuse of nationalism should make us very cautious about whether we just dump nationalism and say, oh, it's all bad, and leave all that terrain to leave it vacant. most um, malign actors, or do we have to think about, is there another way to, to, to think about the nation? Um, remember, these people are characterized by being anti-national nationalists. Mm. You know, exactly as Deborah was saying, the first thing they do is divide the nation. You know, this, this pre-fascist mood that we're seeing at the moment is absolutely based on, on division. Of course, division between us and them. So these are people who are so unclear about what their own nation is that they can only define it in the negative. We're not them, we're not Muslims, we're not Jews, we're not Mexicans, whatever. It doesn't, you know, you, you, we're not Europeans. The negative, the, the them, but they don't know what the us is. Um, and they actually despise the us. You know, they actually have a really profound hatred of what the actual nation is like, which is full of people with lots of different identities and different ways of thinking. Do you think that's about the psychopathy of not um, being psychologically equipped to belong and to compromise with other people, Fenton? Because that's, that's what it seems like to me. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things going on with it. Um, one is the... Um, weaponization of self-pity. Mm -hmm. um, self-pity, people will say, well, it's not a very useful concept, but I would put forward the entire country and Western music industry as, as, as an example of the country, you know, I mean. Anik, um, come on. You know, <laughs> uh, but, but um, see, self-pity is very useful politically. Why? Because self-pity is an emotion that's very powerful, but has no relationship to reality, right? So, um, you can feel very sorry for yourself because you're actually being oppressed and, and because your life is really terrible and because people are doing awful things to you. But you can also feel just as much self-pity out of a sense of pure entitlement mm -hmm. because you're a billionaire and somebody's looking for you to pay your taxes, for example. Yeah. And this is what's going on now, right? So, so, so if you look at the various movements with, with Brexit, with Trump, a lot of the European right-wing movements. There are these alliances between billionaires and, and people who are voiceless. Well, the most elite. And, it's, it, and the thing that brings that together is this kind of self-pity. Mm. And it's a very toxic kind of emotion. Mm. Uh, it's not just economic, though. No. I, I spent a lot of time in Poland. I was there this summer for a while. And um, the Poles, uh, along with other former Soviet bloc countries, are entailed in rewriting the history of World War II yeah. um, and turning themselves into purely victims. We were not oppressors. There were Poles who were victims. There were Poles who were oppressors. There were Poles who were rescuers. But making it illegal to uh, see it in any other way, to take a gorgeous new museum, the World War, uh, World War II Museum in Gdansk, dancing, and to rewrite the whole uh, concept of the museum because to let it glorify, only glorify Poland and show Poles having done no wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm just using Poles as one example. You see it in Hungary, you see it in, in other countries as well. So it's not just economic. And Melissa... Oh, no, it's not. ...plays out in Australian, you know, context as well really massively, I think, if you look at things like land rights or conversations mm -hmm. around reparation. I think, I think that there is a sort of a sense, potentially, of, of, of a threat coming. But the other thing I'm thinking about too is the sort of importance of myth-making to Aboriginal culture and the importance of sort of storytelling and kind of establish, establishing it. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about this idea of a nation being the same people living in the same place. And of course, Aboriginal people have been here for a very, very, very long time. And our boundaries are geographic, not that that's unique in the world, of course, but we have a particular relationship to geography that I think is unique in the world. And yet nationalism is one of the big ideas that kill us, yeah. of course. And to, when you think about the self-pity, I mean, 
the, the shining example of that in Australia um, for the last two decades has been Pauline Hanson with her, her voice, which is essentially a whine about <laughs> entitlement, um, you know, displaced anger. I don't really know why she's angered. She's not a poor person, but, you know, the, and this is why I talk about the psychopathy of it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I guess that's, it is almost universal and it's so easy to slip into. I mean, it's very, it's very enticing to feel sorry for ourselves and it also requires no action. If we feel sorry for ourselves, we can wallow in self-pity, in guilt, in, you know, in all those emotions and not be required to change the society that we live in. So it's, it's kind of a double whammy. In the United States, just in the last week or two weeks ago, either was it in the New York Times or the Washington Post, there was a story about how people are annoyed when they go to visit plantations, which now do tours, and they hear, they hear all about the slaves. And they didn't come to the plantation to hear about the slaves. It's not a happy story. It's not a happy story. They came to hear about the wonderful life on the plantation. And now you're taking to show us the slave quarters, and you're showing us the place where there's slave markets. And, and people have complained. I don't go on these tours to be made to feel guilty or depressed or whatever. Where are the happy darkies? Yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's the forgetting, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's exactly the, that kind of nationalism which is based on amnesia, you know. That's right. Uh, and is based on the construction uh, and, and reinforcement and, and continual reinforcement. You're talking about Poland and, you know, that this is not a passive process, this very active political process of yeah. reconstructing yeah. a That's past. That's exactly right. And John Howard has poured tens yeah. of millions, if not more, dollars into, you know, building up the Gallipoli myth and this legend of, of us as a military, you know, nation with I our know, great lost you guys. defeat at Gallipoli. Yeah. Um, and incorporating Aboriginal people and voices into that, and rightly so, because there were Aboriginal um, men and women at Gallipoli, of course. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not passive, it's strategic, and it's very, very cunning. But the, the, the point about it, I think this is where we, we have to take it on. I mean, I think there's a tendency among people who are instinctively, you know, on the left or progressive, mm. to mistrust nationalism itself right. and to say, you know, and like, God, we all know there's really good reasons for this, right? So you can, you can lay a lot at the door of, of nationalism. Mm. Um, however, let's remember nationalism has also been really important for subject peoples, you know, to, to assert themselves, to, to regain a sense of dignity for themselves. And nature abhors a vacuum. Uh, it does precisely, mm. and I think what we really need to start doing is 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 fingering them as the enemies of the people. You know, because if you look at it, they drip with absolute contempt. You know, I mean, look at Trump's inauguration speech; it's astonishing. I mean, nobody else could ever have got away with making a speech as an as a, in, an incoming American president, which was so full of contempt. Carnage, for America. We're the carnage, American absolutely. carnage. You know, mm. all this sort of stuff. And, and so, you know what, George. W. Bush, the second George Bush, said as he was walking out, he said, we just heard some weird shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the, the point of the weird shit, remember, is that w what they're trying to do is actually move away from classical nationalism. So classical nationalism, and of course there's a lot of, of, of abuse of it and, 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 you know, qualifications to it, but classical nationalism was about attempting to say what unites us is more important than what divides us. We, you know, we are a community. But, you know, Benedict Anderson's definition of the nation as an imagined community. That's what it classically is. What these people are trying to say is, no, we're not a community, and uh, the, the enemy within is as important as the enemy without. Mm -hmm. And that, that's, of course, the way fascism that's works. That's right. It's the way it, it's, it's, you know, it, it's, you it's crucial doubts. to it. Mm -hmm. And we need to be saying, actually, you know what, some of those, you know, you're, you're claiming to be nationalist. It's not, it's qualified nationalism. It's white nationalism. Or it's a sort of Christian nationalism now in a lot of Europe, in, in, in Hungary, in Poland. You know, it, it, it no longer attempts to even say itself that it's about the nation. It, it's, it's, it's qualified in... <coughs> in gender terms, in class terms, in, in ethnic terms. It's an ethnic nationalism, by and large. And there are other kinds of nationalism. And, and I think what we need to start trying to think about is how can we reconstruct a nationalism that is about belonging, as you were saying, rather than about identity and that sort of thing. Which is why I think um, Uncle Bruce Pascoe's book, Dark Emu, one of the reasons it's been such a massive hit and was, uh, you know, is in the bestseller 
uh, lists a long, long time after being released. Uncle Bruce Pascoe is an Aboriginal elder and thinker who talks about um, the management of the Australian landscape for millennia. And, and he demonstrates that there was farming and these kinds of And things. a civilisation here that's yeah. you know, not been imagined by mainstream people. And he does it in terms of we and us and Australia and what we could be. It's this positive image of a smaller liberal um, country, continent, nation of us moving forward together. And I think it's incredibly important, you know, that nations do that because otherwise we, we just surrender to the, the right-wingers that want to create chaos and profit from chaos and uh, have this incredibly dangerous xenophobia that they've weaponised in the course of doing that. We must present a positive alternative. But I think one of the reasons... Sorry, Deborah. I'm just to, to throw in here, speaking as the historian, mm. it's the weaponization of history. I was yes. about to ask That's a question it. to I that mean, point. We're, we're for, mm. Sunday yes. was the 400th anniversary of the sale of the first black person in the United mm. States in mm. Jamestown. Yep. Um, you know, and if you were to ask many people about the Civil War, as they call it in the South, the war between the states, um, what would they say? Oh, was, it wasn't about slavery. It was about states' rights. Mm. Well, as uh, a book, Susan Nyman's book, "What mm -hmm. We Can Learn from the Germans," um, says, states' rights for what? For the right to own people and sell people and enslave people. Mm. Uh, but it's all that rewriting of history. Don't take me to the plantation and show me slavery. Show me happy. Yep. Yep. Um, don't tell me slavery was so bad. Don't remind me that. Uh, America's great economic strength in the 19th century was based so much on slavery. Mm. And don't say to me that, you know, t let me think that slavery ended in 1865 when it really, you had neo-slavery for at least another 100 years after that with mm. sharecropping. And so it, it, it calls for an honest confrontation with history. Mm. But I, I think, you know, that's, that's one of the sort of tasks of nationalism is to go into history and figure out what the relationship between the past and the present is. And, and I think, you know, in some... I, I can't think of a country or a nation in which that is straightforward. And I wonder if it's possible ever, Melissa, to, to come up with an idea of a national identity that is um, going to sort of satisfy all of the people who, who want to be represented underneath that nation. Oh, that's a big question for a novelist. <laughs> <laughs> All I can say is that for tens and tens of thousands of years, the Aboriginal nations, the 500 Aboriginal nations of Australia, operated under a system of recognised law. And uh, we have, in some cases, still have, and had in others, our constitutions and our diplomacy and the song lines which represent that. Uh, and so... We invented the idea of continental peace a very long time before the EU came into existence. <laughs> and uh, again, as Uncle Bruce talks about in Dark Emu and as Bill Gamage talks about in The Greatest Estate on Earth. So all I know is that it's possible, uh, whether it's possible in a 21st century technological context remains to be seen, but I am hopeful. I am hopeful. We're homo sapiens, we're the thinking species. I think, you know, if we put our heads together, we can work this stuff out. But in Australia, where history has been weaponised for a very long time, and the catch guy is don't mention the war, we need treaty before we, or at least simultaneously, as we create a new peace. Fintan, you've described the period that we're in a couple of times on this stage as being pre-fascist. Um, what do you mean by that? And Deborah, I know that you sort of publicly hate making comparisons to anything in the 1930s, but have we got to that point? You want to go first? Okay, so what I mean by pre-fascist is, you know, I, I was using this term because a lot of people were describing a lot of the, um, the far-right parties in Europe as, as post-fascist. You know? mm -hmm. I thought, no, well, actually, they're much more pre-fascist in the sense that um, and this is, it's really important to be really careful about using the F word. It's really important not to overuse it. It's really important not to say we are currently in a fascist state. But what we are in is, is we are seeing the things, the elements that would, if you ended up with fascism, you would look back and say, well, of course, you know, those are the elements that would lead there. 
I mean, Deborah was making the point very, very powerfully earlier this morning, you know, in her, in her wonderful uh, talk that, you know, um, fascism doesn't start with concentration camps. It doesn't start with barbaric actions. You know, that's, that's not, you know, if, if you're saying that's fascism, but no, that's the end, that's, that's the end point of the process. The process starts with the dehumanization of large groups of people. It starts with the division of your society into us and them, the enemies of the people versus right. the people, um, which of course implies that half the population at least who didn't vote for us are not the people, are not people and therefore dehumanized. It, it starts with the absolute abolition of the distinction between lies and truth. Um, you know, so we, we can see all of these things which are, which are, you know, very strongly present in our contemporary culture. And my point with somebody like Trump, and, and I think, you know, even some of the people in Europe are doing the same thing, is Trump is very interesting. He's not, he's not an idiot, you know. He, he has a huge instinctive grasp of certain things, and he's a media creation. I, I used to work for the New York Daily News at one point, and I mean, Trump would ring up the New York tabloids, putting on a funny voice, pretending to be somebody else, to tell them scandalous stories about Donald Trump. <laughs> they would put in That's the, right. you know, he realized it. And, and why did he do that? Because test marketing, test the market, see, see what you can get away with. Put out, an, put out a scandalous story, then pull back from it, deny it. So why do you end up with babies on, in, in cages? Uh, you end up with babies in cages because you want to see how far you can go. You want to see how is this going to play with your base? Is, is this going to go really badly? Now, if you were watching that last year and those images emerging, and you're Trump and you're watching Fox News, and you see Corey Lewandowski, who used to be Trump's campaign manager, there was an image of a child with Down syndrome womp, womp. crying. And Corey Lewandowski making animal noises on air, right? You know? You had uh, Laura Ingram, you know, another of his great supporters, saying, those children who are crying, you have to remember they're actors. Mm. They're just pretending to be, to, to be upset that they've been hauled away from their parents. You know? uh, and if you were Trump, you were watching it, this, this is really working. <laughs> like that, that, so far, there might, there might be a bottom to where these people will go, but we're not anywhere near it yet. Right? So in terms of the test marketing, um, what I suggested last year is that they would kind of pull back from that and then bring it back again. You know, they would refine it, that the, the messaging around it would get better. And that's, this is exactly what we've seen. That's what you've seen, exactly. So, so th this, is, this is not then to be hysterical and to say, you know, fascism is now inevitable and we're... No, it's quite the opposite, which is to say, if we recognize these things going on, then we can arm ourselves, and we can arm ourselves with history, we can arm ourselves with, 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 uh, with, with still trying to hold on to some version of truth uh, and, and of meaning. Um, but if we, if we just sort of sleepwalk into this stuff, then uh, I think we will prove ourselves yet again to have been incapable of learning where things can lead. So, Deborah, as an American then, you know, when you look at those kinds of messages that are coming from the White House, mm -hmm. um, they're, as Finton says, designed to appeal to a base. What do you think that base thinks it means to be American? Right. Uh, white. Uh, you can stop there. <laughs> yeah. um, first of all, in your previous comment that I don't like these comparisons. I don't like them because I think they're too often glibly made. Oh, he's just like Hitler, or this is just like fascism. First of all, something can be terrible, it can be awful, it can be totally repulsive without being like the Nazis, without being like the Holocaust. And I wrote about that in The Atlantic about a year ago um, when the uh, policy of the separation of children, I said, this is not the Holocaust, they're not killing them, but this is unacceptable, it's disgusting, it's terrible. I, I don't want glib comparisons in that sense. Um, but I do think there are certain comparisons that can be made. And again, starting with words. You know, all the things you described start with words, the dehumanization, the division. Um, but the attacks on the democratic institutions, the lying press, which is a term that the, the Nazis used, uh, a, Mexican Mexican, judge. a Mexican judge, you know, uh, who happened to have been born in the United States, the parents of Hispanic origin, 
origin, who may have lived there before there was the United States, you know. Um, the, the media, the lying media, you, you create doubts about the democratic institutions and then you attack them and you turn them into the enemy. And in that sense, I would say that I see similarities between the propaganda, the, the modus operandi of, of the National Socialists in 31, 30, not even 33, 31, 32, whipping up anger. Um, I'll tell you what I worry about, and I don't worry about Trump losing, I, you know, I would sleep better, but I worry about if he were to lose, what is he going to say? Mm. We was robbed? You know, he's not going to go, he's not going to go graciously into the night. Um, and he's going to whip up, and, and plus the fact, even if he would, he's let something out of the bottle. There's a genie that's let out of the bottle of this, you know, hatred that uh, will not be easily put back. I, I began my previous uh, presentation with a clip, and you can uh, go on uh, Mrs. Google and find it easily, um, uh, of the marches at Charlottesville, mm -hmm. you know, the night before the young woman was murdered um, by the driver. But uh, with the tiki torches, first, you will not replace us. Mm. Then Jews will not replace us. Mm. Then blood and soil. And of course, blood and soil is a Nazi mm. slogan. You're not of our blood, Jews. You're not of the soil. Out. Mm. Um, you look at their faces. Uh, you look at, first of all, they're dressed quite nicely. They were told, don't come looking like slobs, don't come wearing Nazi paraphernalia or any insignia. Look like you came out of TJ Maxx or, you know, uh, Brooks Brothers. Not, not quite Brooks Brothers. Um, but uh, the hatred in the faces. Mm. And it's clear that it means white. It means Christian. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean rich. In fact, it generally means not the elite rich, you know. Uh, but you're doing all right. But yes, yes, mm -hmm. exactly. Does or it, if you're not doing all right, it's because of those elites. Yeah. 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 Um, Does it matter um, whether or not it's fascism when there's babies in cages? Does it matter that no, we have no, that argument? No, no, my argument was not that that makes it okay. No, no, I understand my that. Argument, my argument was that be careful of your historical analogies. Mm. Um, be careful of labeling everything, oh, this is a genocide, this is a holocaust. That doesn't make it all right at all. Yeah, at oh, no, all. no, you weren't saying that. Yeah. I just but, wonder whether um, we get caught up in this argument. Is it Well, yeah, well, that's it? what happens. You see, when people and take our eyes made, off the babies. That's exactly what I was arguing. Mm. The minute you start making those analogies, Analogies, you give the other side a chance to say, well, it's not like the Holocaust or it's not like fascism. It's, it's I don't want sea lining. That's right. Yeah. You, you give them an excuse to, and you're suddenly arguing uh, about that. It's the same way that I was saying before. Um, I don't know if Donald Trump, I don't know if Jeremy Corbyn is an anti-Semite. What's in his heart? What's in their hearts? That's, as I said earlier on the stage, that's between them and their cardiologists. Um, <laughs> but I see what they do. So I don't want to get into an argument what someone is because that's immaterial. Yes. It's what they enable and what right. they do. And in both cases, and certainly with the Donald Trump, we're seeing divisions. Mm. We're seeing um, dehumanization of people who are other. Uh, and, and I think as, as you correctly point out, it's not, he's not an idiot. On those kind of things, he has his finger on that pulse of, the, of his followers. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because there is a Sri Lankan family on, horribly ironically, on Christmas Island, as we speak, who are very welcomed by the people, the ordinary Australians in the town of Biloela. And it is Morrison who has, and his government who has put those people there. And so the question arises, is this professed Christian, is he actually a Christian or is he just lying through his teeth? And I don't care. What I care about is that those people are That's on right. that island That's right. and should be in Biloela. That's right. I think that one of the things that a lot of these stories have in common, and if you look back through history, um, a lot of sort of nationalist sentiment 
comes out of conflict, you know, be it a war and it's, you know, the first thing in many leaders' toolbox if they're feeling like, you know, things are suffering domestically to, you know, reach for a common, common enemy, go to war over the Falklands or, or you know, the, the Tampa incident in Australia. You know, there, there, there are lots of times that you see that throughout history. I wonder whether nationalism needs conflict in order to be brought into existence, whether that's the sort of, that, that, that's the first step. And Melissa, I guess, um, you know, when you look at the history of the way that white Australia came about originally, you know, I mean that that was an incredible conflict. It was, you know, a genocidal dispossession. Um, how that formed a sort of pan-Aboriginal sense um, and how that's kind of played out through Australian history. Yeah, what the British invasion created eventually in Australia, because it, it occurred at different times, historical times, you know, what happened in uh, Botany Bay or, or Warang in 1788 didn't happen in the Kimberleys until the late 1800s, arguably around 1900 for some people. So the process um, wasn't, um, didn't occur at one particular point. What that did create eventually was a pan-Aboriginal identity and um, that still exists to some extent, but it sits on top of the 500 Aboriginal nations, which I think may not have originally evolved out of war. I think they evolved out of geography. Right. Um, but it's hard to know because they evolved such a very long time ago. I thought you had something to say about nations and war. Conflict. By your reaction. Well, you know, um, what we know is that, of course, I mean, all societies that we know of are formed out of conflict because conflict has been the norm historically. Different kinds of conflict, not necessarily military conflict, but competition for resources, all of those kinds of things going on. Um, and uh, the question is, can we form institutions that... Uh, shelter people, you know, that actually give, give people a sense of belonging, a sense of comfort, uh, a sense of patriotism without the conflict. Right? Um, so we know historically where these things come from, either from the imposition of a, an imperial or quasi-imperial ideology. So America is brought together as America by slavery, by slaughtering Indians, and by then inventing an American empire. Um, Britishness is very much the same kind of thing. Or it's out of opposition to that, right? So, so then the peoples who are the subjects of those kinds of processes try to identify themselves in a way that allows them to resist in some form. Actually, since the Second World War, you could say we have had examples of peaceful institutions which have come to mean an enormous amount to people, right? Like the and like, for example, in Britain, the National Health Service, you know, if you ask most English people or Scottish people, you know, well, what do they really value about Britishness? They won't say the Queen and the flag, you know, they say, I can go to a doctor and I can be treated or I can get into a really good hospital or, you know, it, it, it's, it's education, it's healthcare, it's housing, it's having a democratic voice. So, there are ways in which an idea of national identity can be formed institutionally through the mutuality of, you know, contributing your taxes and getting benefits, you know. And so it, it, it seems to me that it doesn't have to be conflictual. Um, and that if, if, if we can't imagine a kind of national identity without conflict, then we're in very, very profound trouble because we're not going to transcend this current moment. But I think we can. And I think, you know, there are institutions like the European Union for all its uh, difficulties, you know, which are extraordinary creations, institutional creations of something, which and the European Union is very interesting. I was finishing this. The, the, the assumption 30, 40 years ago was the European Union will, you will dissolve all the nationalities of Europe into one big United States of Europe. That hasn't happened. It's not going to happen. And what people have realized is it doesn't have to happen at all. It's, right. it's completely pointless. People are perfectly p capable of having different levels of identity. They can have a local identity, a national identity, a European. A, we all need 
urgently a planetary identity. So, you know, we, we need to be thinking about our belonging in these kind of con concentric circles. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think we are capable of, 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 of giving that some sort of institutional form. And I guess that sort of goes to the need for stories that have the space for the ambiguity and, and the diversity that, that can be sort of, you know, properly representative of, of what everybody looks for in this sense of belonging, that being part of a country can allow, or part of a nation can allow. But I wonder how you can sort of form that sense without sort of completely unravelling the sense of collective belonging, I guess. And, and I wonder, moreover, you know, how important the need to formalise that is. I mean, Melissa, you mentioned treaty before in, in Australia. I, I, why, do you, why is treaty so important? Because there's unfinished business. Um, an Aboriginal elder said to me in Brisbane 20-odd years ago, what we have in Australia is an undeclared truce. Some people will see themselves still at war. Others, like Uncle Bruce, say we lost. There was a war, we lost it. Um, and other people aren't really sure because to concede loss is to concede a, a great deal. Um, I guess I keep coming back again and again, Fenton, when you say things about the European Union 34 years ago, and I remember that uh, on this continent... Unlikely as it sounds, we invented peace. Mm. We invented human society. Homo sapiens here learned to live in harmony under a government of laws and not of men. And so continental peace is possible. And I think uh, I don't mean to be disrespectful or uh, flippant, but it really is the essence of civilization to be able to imagine yourself at peace with your neighbour, mm. you know. And to, when, when Aboriginal people who understand Aboriginal law hear others speak about the, the difficulty of nations getting along, of course that's a reality. Of course European and other nations constantly have warred for hundreds of years. And in our societies in post-colonial times, we, we go to war a lot amongst ourselves. But to hear people talk about this as a distant unlikely or very, very difficult thing. It's like a white Australian being told that how can you live next door to someone who you're not related to and not constantly battle with them? You know, how do these things called suburbs work? How can you, how can you live that way and not be at war with all the other families in your street? It's this kind of bafflement that we have because we created peace here. Right. Mm. We are going to be taking questions from the audience. Um, so if you do have uh, anything you'd like to ask any of the people on the stage here, perhaps you could start moving two microphones. We've got four microphones in the theatre, two downstairs and two upstairs. Um, Can I just add a point, because I've been listening very closely here. Um, but it, it goes back to this notion, and it goes back to what I was saying about populism, of resentment. And what we're seeing today, whether it's in the Brexit, in the United States, Poland, Hungary, even Italy, um, is uh, Brazil, the plain, the creation of resentments, mm. or mm. there may be resentments there, but the building up, the, the giving it oxygen, yeah. because then you define yourself as us and them. Mm. And the them, whether it's the elites, whether it's the wealthy, whether it's the powerful, whether it's the media, whether it's the people who say you should have a vaccine so your child doesn't have measles and give it to someone else, um, they're bad. Mm. And that's what's so scary. Um, I know that from the history of anti-Semitism up close and personal, and certainly mm. we see it now on a broad, in a broader realm. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's the opposite of statesmanship. <laughs> But it's, I think we do have to remember that it's, it's, it's very, very consciously created. Yes, you know, absolutely. And, and it's being created. And one of the things that's sort of specific about our moment, I think, is that it's being created in order for people with privilege to, to mimic mm. 
the suffering of, of, of people without privilege. And to so, co-opt it. You know, this is both, both to co-opt it, um, in, but, but also to say, you know, I mean, at the heart of all this, of this sort of stuff is saying, you know, well, men are the real victims of gender. Mm. Uh, White people are the ones who are really suffering. Yeah. Um, yeah. In America, I mean, one of the most grotesque things, if you're Irish, is to watch in America the, all the Irish Americans around Trump, for example. I mean, Trump, believe it or not, this is you can check it. It's actually true. <laughs> in in to that, 2017, Trump came to power in January. One of the first acts, one of the first executive orders, was to declare March 2017 to be Irish American Heritage mm -hmm. Month mm -hmm. with a proclamation that we should celebrate the resilience um, and extraordinary achievements of these very poor people who came to America, you know, as, as famine refugees. While at the same time, you know, he was he was doing the stuff about the wall and the Mexicans and the Muslims. Mm. So it's 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 very Irish deliberate. But what's that about? It's about the, so the message there. It's none of this is innocent, right? It's, it's saying, look at us Irish Americans. Mm. We suffered and we're fine. Mm. So we made it. We made it. And you could make it too. And if without... you didn't make it, it's your fault. That's right. Yeah. So so this stuff is being manipulated for very very specific political purposes, which is basically. First of all, to, to delegitimize real suffering. Mm. Mm. You know, to say, uh, these Aboriginals, these Mexicans, whatever, it's, it's all their own fault, basically. That's right. Um, so it, it doesn't deny suffering. It says, but, you know, but actually we, we suffer more and we're being discriminated against more. Now we are the, we are the real victims. Mm. And it's very powerful because it doesn't just animate this resentment. Of course, it gives it a, a very a daily focus, you know. Um, so it's it's women, it's gays, it's people of color, it's you know, it it, it, it it's Jews. It, you, and you it's can, yeah. and it's happening at an era when women, gays, um, people of color have pushed back and have made some gains. Uh, and well, those right. small gains are being magnified in the right-wing reactionary imagination to be the end of the world as we know it. Because yeah. um, if you're used to privilege, then equality feels like oppression, Absolutely. as the saying goes. Yeah. Wow. Good line. <laughs> I hope someone's tweeting that right now. Um, so. Before we go to questions, um, I want to perhaps preempt some. Um, I'd like to pass an imaginary crystal ball down the line. Deborah, um, 2020 US election. Uh, oh. In, in, in 20 words or less. Is, is, is it going to be Trump, Warren, and who's going to win? I just don't know. I don't know. I'm very worried. Um, I think the uh, Democrats are engaged in eating their own. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried about what will happen to my country uh, with another four year, five years of this. What will happen to the Supreme Court? Uh, there's so many things, so many big and small ways in which this is being pushed. And Donald Trump isn't even aware of most of them, but he has let those people loose. Mm -hmm. Melissa, are we going to get a referendum on treaty? And how long do you think it'll take? Uh, I'm not sure if it will be through a referendum or not, but yes, there will be a treaty. Absolutely. And then... And then we can build an Australia that we can be proud of and which holds space for everybody. And Fenton, what's going to happen next week? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, like, there's, there's a very simple thing, which is uh, the, the right and these reactionary projects only succeed because those who are against them will not unite and take action against them. You know, they, 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 they do not command majorities. Trump does not command a majority. No. Brexit, yes, it, it was passed by 52%. In a way, it's astonishing that 48% of people voted against Brexit when they were told that you could have all the benefits of being in the European Union without having any of the costs. Who wouldn't vote for that? So as a real project, however, it does not command a majority. The no-deal stuff that Johnson is pushing, even the polls will say there's about 30% of people favour it. Um, the, the problem is, can Democrats 
unite enough, and I mean Democrats with a small d, people who hold to basic democratic values from the left and the centre can then unite against these uh, rabid, destructive movements. Mm -hmm. um, we'll, we'll find out next week, because they, they have to do it very fast now. You're saying you have no idea, aren't you? Well, my, my guess is, and maybe I'm, I'm being ludicrously optimistic, is that I think they will, because I think Johnson's pushed it too far. Um, I think he's, he's, he's given them no chance to dither. <laughs> that I, actually, this thing about proroguing Parliament might work against him because he has set a deadline of a week and he said, you either stop me next week or you won't stop me at all. Interesting. Uh, and I think there's a decent chance that they may put a spoke in his wheel. It's interesting. Just one, one thing I want to pick up on that you said, you're, you're talking about, and the, I, I think one of the things that we haven't done in this conversation, and now we're almost out of time, but... but um, is acknowledged that populist movements happen on the left as well as the right. Yes. We've been focused right. on right populism, but I think that we need to acknowledge that throughout history there have been very dangerous populist movements that have started from the left of politics. And also that I guess in Brexit it's become a sort of right-left thing, but in fact I think in its inception it was more complicated than that as well. And there were certainly people on the left of politics who wanted to leave EU for different reasons, you know. That's right. um, but yeah. I mean, there are great reasons to hate the elites. <laughs> I mean, the elites have behaved absolutely abysmally, and it's something we can't leave out of any of this, right? Which is that, I mean, a huge factor, certainly in, in, in Europe, is the banking crisis. You know, the, the abysmal behavior of the financial elites um, has then created 10 years of austerity for ordinary people paying for this, this uh, absolutely outrageous greed with, and Critically, one of the critical things that has led us to where we are is the lack of punishments, quite frankly. You know, mm -hmm. the spectacle of these huge-scale fraudsters getting away with it and ordinary people suffering. The United States suffering. was the downturn of 2008. Mm -hmm. Nobody was punished. And, I was yeah. wanting to, to raise that, and we may be out of time, Fitton, but you, you're talking about the new populism needing an external enemy, and once Europe, if Brexit does go to a no-deal, Europe is no longer there as the enemy, and is there any chance of class warfare erupting in uh, England? Hopefully. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, I wasn't going to say it. Uh, it no, but it's, it's a really good point, very briefly. The, the stupidity of Brexit is they've been using Europe as a scapegoat for all the screw-ups of the British ruling class for the last 25 years. The one thing you should never do with a scapegoat is kill it. <laughs> <laughs> First rule of theatre. Well said, well said. Yeah. So, let's take some questions. i ask you to keep your questions very short because we've got quite a few to get through and we want to make sure that everybody or as many people as possible get a chance. So, microphone number three, please. Hi. I was in Ireland recently, and one word I kept meeting was deadly. Mm. Now, deadly is a very important word in the Aboriginal community here, and it turns out it's an important word in the Irish community here. Is there more parallels between the Aboriginal experience of colonialism and the Irish experience than we acknowledge? Um, it's a great question, and I'm sure um, Melissa probably has a lot to say about it too. Um, I think, of course, there are, there are parallels to, of, of dispossession, of cultural destruction, of, of massive displacement. Um, I think we also have to acknowledge in the Australian context that uh, what the, the, the fundamental difference is that the Irish experience is, is both of being colonised and of being colonisers. Um, Aboriginals didn't come to Ireland and displace us. Um, we, yes. we, we did come to Australia and, and displace, uh, you know, uh, uh, in, in both ways. I mean, a, a lot of Irish people I know intermarried with, 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 with Indigenous people. Some of the greatest early defenders of, of the rights of Aboriginal people were Irish, but also some of the murderers, mm -hmm. some of the displacers, some of the racists were Irish. And your and president has apologised for that. Absolutely, was absolutely. Pleased to say. Oh, we, we, I suppose we... we, we, we and if there's a story that nations need to tell themselves, you know, it's that story about, about both what they have done and what they've suffered. Mm. And, and, and they have to balance each, each, each other out, you know, and, and, and maybe the Irish story in Australia is, is a very good example of that, but I don't know how you feel about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's right. It's, it's a, again, it comes back to geography. In, in their own country, the Irish um, suffered invasion by the English and, by the, and an Irish elite that enabled that, as far as I understand. 
but the Irish who, who came to Australia or were forced to come to Australia in chains often um, murdered Aboriginal people, raped Aboriginal women, killed, you know, killed children, and my own Irish great-grandfather beat the shit out of my Aboriginal great-grandmother, I learnt a year or two ago, um, as well as being my own blood. So, uh, but yeah, the experience of colonisation, I think, has parallels all over the world because, um, you know, it's, it, it's essentially the process of, being, of people seeing what they like and taking it in an unlawful fashion while they dehumanise the person they're stealing from. And that doesn't change. Mm. Yeah. Microphone number four, please. Yes, I'd like to thank the speakers very much. I've really found this very thought-provoking. When you talk about popularism, it seems to me one of the major things popularism feeds on is a sense of umbrage. And I was wondering whether there's anything we can do to address the umbrage and thereby address the rise of popularism. Yeah, um, it, it is, you know, the feeling of we was robbed, we, we've lost out, even by people who haven't lost out. Um, I'm not sure because it's irrational. It's an irrational kind of sense of uh, because, uh, you know, an African-American may have gotten the job, it would have been my job if they hadn't gotten it. Um, but I think to recognize it, to call it out, is a beginning. I'm not sure there's much that can really be done about it. So, Under know. socialism, yeah. <laughs> all this will be fixed. I mean... <laughs> If you're, if you're a poor white person living in, I don't know, Warrnambool or Burke or somewhere and you don't have a good job and you don't have much prospects, of course you're going to look for someone to kick. Uh, and I think, as Fitton said, it's not that people aren't suffering necessarily, it's that their sense of suffering is inflated and they're given a scapegoat to blame for but that. In the United States, many of these people are not no. suffering. Uh, that, that's that's that, the whole thing. Absolutely true. So there, there's, a, there's an irrational and there's a rational populism. Mm. I mean, as I said, like, there are blood-sucking Elites, you know, they're not Jews, they're not blacks, they're not Mexicans, you know. They're, it's, 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 a, it's, it's an economic question, it's a question of economic equality. Mm. Underlying all of this is the fact that from 1945 until 1980, all through the Western world, if you, if you look at pretty much every society was becoming more equal economically. And since 1980, every society has been becoming more and more unequal. That's you right. cannot have democracy and the promise of democracy, which is a promise of equality, while the vast majority of the new wealth being created is going to the top 1% and the top 1% of the 1%. Yeah. You just can't do it because it undermines the promise of democracy, which is you count as much as I count. We count as citizens. We can look each other in the eye. The, the Irish-Australian philosopher Philip Pettit, who, who teaches here, um, has a great definition of a republic. He says it's a place where we can look one another in the eye without reason for fear or deference. Mm. And we're losing that. I mean, none of us can look many of the people who, 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 who control societies in the eye without having to defer to them or without being afraid of them. Um, and so I think we can build institutions which at least deal with the rational side of the resentment mm. Without at all um, gainsaying what you're saying, that, that of, of course a lot of this is. People is also who, the people who are supporting Donald Trump, many of them are not. No. Mm. Yeah. That's yeah. true. And that's true of Hanson as well. Right. Yeah. Isn't mm. it? Yeah. And it's, wrong. it's a mistake to think, oh, these are people who have been displaced and, and displaced, and that's why we can only deal with that. But mm. it's, it's not the case. They think they're, you know, just. Yeah. Mm. And it's useful as well, not just to look at the poor and the poverty, but to look at the rich and the wealth. Where is it? Who benefits? Is a useful question. You know, people, there's poverty porn, there's, there's this interest in the lives of the very marginal, of the, the very downtrodden. But it's easy to look at that. It's not so easy to look at the people who have the money and the wealth and the power because they hide it a lot better. Mm. Microphone number one, please. Hi, um, my question's for Melissa. Uh, I'm a whale one woman and I'm interested in your thoughts on voice to parliament. Give us a wave, I can't see you. Hey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh hello. Hey. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm interested in your thoughts on voice to parliament. It's looking like under this government it's not going to be constitutionally enshrined, which is what we asked for. Yeah. Uh, with that in mind, is this something that's worthwhile if it can just be disbanded like ATSIC? 
or um, is it a bit of a distraction on the path to treaty? I think the whole idea of constitutional recognition is so that it's not like ATSIC. I mean, I have reservations about the process and I don't speak for anyone except myself uh, when I talk about treaty or the, the voice to parliament. But um, there was a very interesting podcast. I can't remember if it was the ABC or the... Um, uh, what's that short podcast? Uh, Lacking? Oh, yeah. Um, I know. Yeah. Sorry, I can't remember. Uh, anyway, if you Google a podcast about it, it, it goes through, I think it was the ABC, the history of... Uh, Aboriginal representation from the 60s till now, including ATSIC, and how the demise of ATSIC came about. And it shows how the voice to parliament is looking for constitutional recognition so that um, whatever body results actually can't be disbanded. Uh, and that analysis um, made me think a little bit more positively about the voice to parliament. Um, all I can say is that treaty is coming because we are a patient people. Uncle Vincent Lingari said we know how to wait and we're not going anywhere and we're not going to stop fighting, so there will be a treaty. It's just a matter of how long it takes. Um, microphone number two, please. Hi, uh, quick question. So let's say, you know, best case scenario, Donald Trump doesn't win uh, and we have Warren or uh, Joe Biden as the president. Um, and then they were thinking, like, I really want to create this new sense of belonging uh, and kind of move away from this whole right-wing nationalism, but I need to do it for all these different groups uh, within America. What are the top two or three sort of policy positions or sort of activities they could take? 27 seconds or less. Yes. <laughs> uh, that they could take to now. promote that. Um, it's, it's a good question. I think first and foremost, it's going to be hard to do anything because, as I said earlier, this resentment has been let out of the bottle. It's not like, oh, they lost. It can all just be recapped. Um, I would think certainly something with health care would be number one. Uh, fixing problems with Obamacare, which was a great step forward, but not enough. Uh, that would, to my mind, be the first. And I think, well, a climate will be a divisive thing, though it's certainly something that needs addressing. Um, that's, you know. I think we have time for one more question from microphone number four, please. Yeah. Um, my question is about the current situation in Brazil. They're having this moment of statehood and sovereignty uh, as an excuse for the utter destruction of one of the most important uh, pieces of the environment that the world has. So I wanted to ask what the panel thinks about what the international community can do to address this crisis without uh, disrespecting or dismantling the sovereignty of Brazil, uh, especially in a post-colonial context that's also a globalist context. It's a hard one. Um, yeah, wow. You really pulled that out at the end, didn't you? Mm -hmm. I suppose what we, have to, what, we, what we have to say firstly is that sovereignty is, is not a, a, a single thing. You know, th th this sort of narrow nationalism is all about the claim that, uh, you know, you, you can be sovereign in your own territory with no consequences for anybody else. And, and that is as outrageous as saying you can be a citizen uh, on your own without the duties and responsibilities to your fellow citizens. Um, what, 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 we're, what we're seeing with this, this outrage, really, is, um, you know, the the ultimate version of this reactionary idea of sovereignty, you know, which, which is that it's, it's, it's only about us. Um, that notion of sovereignty is incompatible with human survival, right? <laughs> to, to put it no, no, no less dramatically. It just, it, it, we simply cannot survive as a species on a, on a notion that each um, nation, however defined, uh, is able to act internally in any manner that it wishes. Mm. Remember, and Deborah, of course, knows vastly more about this than, than, the, than the rest of us, but the Holocaust, for example, led to radical redefinitions of sovereignty in relation to law, in relation to international law, the, the crimes of genocide, crimes against humanity. We do need crimes of ecocide. You know, we, we do need to define the destruction of the environment on that scale as a crime against humanity, and we need to take action 
And yes, of course, they will mobilize ideas of sovereignty against this. But I think what, what you, you also, you're seeing huge numbers of people out on the streets in Brazil saying, we're human beings too. You know, if, if, if this thing, thing dies to, you know, to, as, as some kind of sacrifice to Brazilian sovereignty, we die too. Um, so I think there is a way of, of, of um, reframing this. Um, I think in the short term, though, I, I think the rest of the international community has to be quite brutal. I think, I think there have to be boycotts, uh, economic boycotts. The European Union is about to sign a trade deal with, 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 with Brazil and, and some of the other uh, Mercosur countries. It should stop doing it, just saying we're not doing this so long as you're behaving in this way. People have to be reminded um, that the, the, the freedom of nations is like every other form of freedom. Your, your freedom to swing your arm stops when, it, when your fist hits my nose, you know? And I think it speaks to an idea of responsibility as well. Um, I really hate to pull the conversation up there because I think we could talk about this for some time more, but the conversation will be continuing potentially in the foyer where all three writers will be signing copies of their books. All you need to do is buy one of those books, which I heartily recommend because they are all extremely good. Um, Very funny book. Yeah. <laughs> so if you could please join me in thanking Finton, Melissa and Deborah. And maybe we can all go away thinking a little bit more about what it means to be a citizen in 2019.